0: A man crosses the border each morning with a donkey, and each day his donkey is loaded only with bags of straw. When he reaches the bridge marking the border, the tax collectors search his bags to calculate what duty he must pay on his exports. Every day they find nothing, and yet In the evening after their shift is finished, in the taverns, in the restaurants of the city, they see the man spending lots of money and boasting to the fact that he's a smuggler and no one can catch him. Every day, incensed by his bold claims, the tax collectors obsessively search his bags of straw. They sift through the straw. They cut it in pieces. They rip open the fabrics of his bag. They attempt to burn the straw, check his hat, check his beard, even cut open his shoes, looking to find some coins that might be between the leather. And yet, each evening, he is seen back in the city growing ever more prosperous and ever more brazen, even offering to pay for the tax collector's meals and drinks while continuing to tell his story of cunning smuggling. The tax collector continued to their futile interrogations of the straw bags for years, but to no avail. This continues... Until now, a prosperous man, the smuggler moves away to another city and settles down to enjoy his wealth. Years pass on, and one day in the market, one of the tax collectors meets his old foe, the smuggler, and he asks, many years have passed. I am no longer a tax collector, and we are just two old men. Please, can you tell me what it was that you were smuggling all this time? And the smuggler replied, donkeys. (laughs) In our story today, the smuggler got one over on the tax collectors. However, in our scripture today, we'll see our tax collector get one over on the world as he leaves everything to follow Jesus. Would you leave everything to follow Jesus? Have you left everything to follow our Lord? See, the world has a hard time with this. Do you remember Matthew 19? Matthew 19, starting in verse 16, states, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept since my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell what you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, am I saying that each and every one of us here has to go ahead, sell all of our possessions and give everything to the poor and follow Jesus? Well, it would be a good start. But... (laughs) That doesn't mean that we who haven't been called are to do so. There are those that have. We just had a missionary a few months ago, Craig Tippy from Peru. That's what God placed upon his heart. He did so. He was obedient. And as such, his ministry is thriving in Peru. However, the moment we start thinking that we've got it all together, that we aren't in need of anything, that the kingdom of heaven is mine, watch out. The Pharisees didn't think that they were in need of a physician, but yet Jesus calls them out. Maybe we'll be called out. We'll be challenged today as we read through this passage. Last week, the fishermen dropped their nets and forsook all and followed him. This week, we'll see Matthew, the tax collector, do the very same thing. Maybe it's time for us To give up on some of our earthly dreams and instead start pursuing those heavenly rewards. The title of today's message, Left Behind. Would you pray with me? Lord, sometimes we can get so wrapped around the axle. We can get uh, so possessive with our possessions, Lord. When really, we just need to leave them all behind. Because in all honesty, it's all yours anyway. Lord, let us not get stuck on material things, on wealth, or chasing after the things of this world. But instead, let our focus be on you. So, Lord, today, as we delve into your scripture, I pray, Lord, etch it upon our hearts. And, Lord, if there's anything of man, I pray that you would allow it to fall upon deaf ears. God, know how much we love you. We thank you. We sing your praises. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. And everybody said... Amen. Amen. Now, if there's anybody who needs a Bible, just raise your hand and one of the ushers will come around and give you one. We're going to be starting off in Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After these things, after what things? After a paralytic being healed, a leper being cleansed, a fishnet almost breaking because the fish were in such multitudes that the bolt was almost starting to sink. All kinds of sick, those with a bunch of various diseases were brought to Jesus and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Demons came out crying, you are the Christ, the son of God. By the way, if you ever hear anybody speaking like that, probably demon-possessed. After all these things, the story continues. He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, or Matthew, sitting at the tax office. So, more than likely, this would have been akin to our modern-day toll booth, right? And as people would travel along the roadways, Matthew would be there at a station, and everyone must pay a tax. Now, I mentioned it before, the tax collectors were not the most popular within society. Romans needed to collect taxes to fund their empire. And if you remember, when we started off in the book of Luke in chapter 2, it began with a census. Why was there a census? See, Caesar Augustus decreed that everyone should be registered. There was a census, so they would know how much taxes were supposed to come from that area. So what they would do is they would enlist one of the locals. And as such, that's one of the reasons why these local tax collectors were so hated. Hated by the Jews, because they worked for Rome. The very oppressors of their occupation. Yet... There was a certain amount that was required to be collected for Rome. However, the tax collectors were allowed to keep anything that they collected over that. And as such, they would, also, they would often go ahead and collect a lot more than was required. You can see why, uh, number one, they were so hated. And number two, the system was ripe for corruption. Now, aren't you glad that our tax system isn't corrupt? Now, notice Matthew is called Levi. And I begin, I believe that this gives us some insight as to where he may have been earlier in his life. Now, the name Levi probably indicates that he was from the tribe of Levi. Levi, yes, exactly, right? Now, if you were from the tribe of Levi when you reached maturity, what were you expected to become? A priest. And that would explain the Gospel of Matthew. Because in the book of Matthew here it is, there is the most Old Testament Scripture in that book. More than any of the other Gospels that are out there. So, if he was raised expecting to become a priest, he would have been knowledgeable. He would have been learned in all of those Scriptures. But now let's just go ahead and speculate a little bit. Let's say that He had these godly parents. They raised him up in God's word. He becomes of age. He goes off to Jerusalem. He sees the priests. He sees the priests dealing wrongly with the people. He sees their corruptness inside. He recognizes that's not the word of God that I've seen, that I've come to know. And he gets a really bad taste in his mouth. And he says, you know what? If I'm going to be a thief, at least I'll be an honest thief. And I'll go ahead and become a tax collector for Rome. But then somebody comes on scene. The word of God. And just as it says in the scriptures, Jesus preached as one with authority. Matthew sees that and says, that's the word of God that I know. That's the word of God that I loved. And he forsakes all in order to follow after him. Again, is that really how it happened? We don't know. Continuing, verse 27. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Now, note the order. First, Matthew left all. Then he rose up. When you read through the Gospels, it's interesting to study, to see all the things left behind. Did you see what I did there? You see, the message is left behind, and I, yeah, OK, all right. So by the people who go and follow Jesus, the fishermen left their nets. Luke 5:11. The woman at the well left her water pot. John 4:28. Lazarus left his grave clothes. John 11:44. Mary left the pieces of her alabaster box. Matthew 28, 7. Bartimaeus left his beggar's clothes. Mark 10, 50. The people who want to walk the highest in the Lord and who will be rewarded in the kingdom eternally are those who have left things behind. I've seen my own life limited in ministry when I was not willing to do so. Leave your retirement and follow me. That's what Jesus said. You think that was easy? (laughs) But remember, Satan wants to weigh us down with the stuff of this world. Jesus wants to set us free. Verse 29. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. Now, this verse begins, or I should say, starts to describe one of the many feasts in the book of Luke. In ancient Israel, around the table was a place where spiritual points were taught and where fellowship occurred. That's one of the reasons why I encourage you, if you haven't signed up for our bread of life, our breaking bread ministries, the sign up is still out in the foyer. Do so. It is amazing and important for us to fellowship together. Now, whose house were they in? They were in Matthew's house, right? Do you think the people of the town knew whose house that that was? Whose house that Jesus was in? Absolutely. And do you think that they reserved judgment? Certainly not. Now, let's say, for example, that you went ahead and you observed me coming out of the fireside, our local bar here in the town. I wonder how quick some of you might be to cast judgment. But what if I had received a call from a concerned wife and her husband had been at the bar all day and still wasn't home yet? Changes the whole perspective, doesn't it? See, our scripture says there were a great number of tax collectors and other sinners. Remember, our tax collectors weren't the the, uh, um, most well-liked. So as such, most of their friends were Other tax collectors. So that would make sense why they were there. Tax collectors and other sinners. And where do we find Jesus? Right in the middle of them all. There were three places that Jesus consistently frequented. Open places where he preached to the masses. Quiet places where he prayed to his father. And festive places where he would celebrate with people. When you read through the Gospels, you can't help but recognize Jesus, he was at all the parties, whether it was at the home of a religious leader like Simon the Pharisee or the house of Matthew, a tax collector with the deplorables of society. Jesus was often in attendance to in these feasts and festivals. And we shouldn't be completely surprised either when his first public miracle was turning water into wine. At where? A wedding ceremony. And of course, what was the purpose? Was it to serve communion? Oh, no. It was to continue the celebration. Jesus had the ability to attract people to himself abundantly and constantly and enjoyed being with others immensely. Verse 30. And their scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You see, the issue of eating with sinners was sensitive in Judaism, since they believed that eating with somebody or in such company gave the appearance of the acceptance of their sin. Jesus wanted his relationship to be to be leading sinners to God rather than Quarantining himself from such people. You know, Paul states in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since you would need to go out of this world. You know, Michelle and I were just discussing this on our date on Friday night, that we are all one body in Christ. Amen? Yes, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 12 states, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now, if your physical body is injured, what happens? Let's say that you get a cut or you're wounded. Okay, All the white blood cells go and they attack and protect it against infection. The red blood cells work together with the platelets, the fibrin, the clotting factors in order to form a barrier that goes ahead and forms a scab so that you don't bleed out. But in the body of Christ, someone falls in sin. We don't rush to their aid. We gather in our little groups. We gossip about it. And we're too quick to point the finger. What if our physical body actually did that? We get wounded, and all the white blood cells, they go ahead and rush down to our big toe. (laughs) They go ahead and they say, oh, my goodness, did you see that cut on his arm? Yeah, that was pretty bad, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm glad I'm nowhere near that one. And then we have to walk around with this big bloated, you know, toe and everything. You know, I'm really glad that God didn't give our physical body the ability to do that. It's something that we discussed at our Band of Brothers Coffee and Prayer also. What is the Great Commission? Matthew 28, 19, and 20 states, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. Are we to fulfill the Great Commission by going to church? No. We need to be in the world. Going out to all nations, it says. And that's one of the reasons why we support many of the missionaries here at CCRS. I believe that, or or is it, I should say, is it possible just to stay in church and bring the gospel to other believers? We're already saved, right? Yeah, that's why we're called not to be in the world, excuse me, not to be in the world, (laughs) we are called to be in the world, but not of it. John 15, 18 and 19 states, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And that brings us to our first points. Be in the world. Be in the world. Now, should we fellowship and have good Christian relationships in our lives? Absolutely. However, should we go ahead and lock ourselves up in our homes and never venture out into the world? For if this was the case, how could we accurately represent what or even witness to or ever live up to what we call ourselves? Little Christ, we're Christians. I love the fact that when we went camping last year, here it was. We sat around the fire. We worshiped. We were praising God as we did so. And think about everybody else at the campgrounds looking at these crazy Christians worshiping God. But you see, we're allowed to have fun in Christianity, aren't we? Absolutely, yes. And we're going to talk about Jesus partying in just a little bit. But don't misunderstand me. Am I telling you to go to nightclubs and down a few cold ones with all your unsaved friends? No. But it's okay to go out to dinner with, to go out to a movie with, to get coffee with them and share that what good God has done in your lives with them, those unsaved friends and family members of ours. Jesus is about to call them out on this and we'll see that if someone doesn't like or agree with what your position is and they're married to their ideology, no matter what you do, they will always find something about you to criticize. Verse 31. Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that the Pharisees and the scribes had no need of spiritual healing. Instead, he was saying that only those who know their spiritual need can be treated. As self-righteous people, the Pharisees would not come for aid. And in their own eyes, they didn't need a doctor. I once heard it said that the the church is like a hospital. It's filled with sick people. As such, should we be surprised... When somebody gossips about you, someone hurts your feelings, someone lets you down. No, we're all just sinners in need of a Savior. Imperfect people in an imperfect world trying to do the best we can according to where God has us. Amen? Yes. Jesus isn't condoning or accepting everyone's sin. Instead, he's being available to be their doctor. Think about it. When a doctor walks into a patient, does he walk into the room because he loves disease? No, he loves and/or cares about the patient. Love the sinner, hate the sin, right? I know we have doctors' appointments now on Zoom and over the internet, but to perform the surgery, to cut out the tumor, to reset the bone, the physician needs to be in the room. Jesus was in the room with the tax collectors and the sinners. Thank God for our great physician, Jesus. Verse 33. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? Now the Pharisees, they fasted twice a week, on Mondays and Thursdays. We'll read about that in Luke 18, 12 as well as on the Day of Atonement. We see that in Leviticus 16.29. They also fasted as an act of penance. We see that in Isaiah 58, 1-9. And to recall four times a year the destruction of Jerusalem. We see this in Zechariah 7.3.5, also chapters 8, verse 19. Now, the leadership here at CCRS, we fast every Monday. Now, do do we do this because we think that we're better than everybody else? We're so high and mighty? No. The goal of fasting is uh, is to dedicate oneself to prayer and to focus on God, not to focus on the things of this earth. John's disciples fasted. Why don't your disciples do the same? They asked Jesus in his first letter to Timothy, Paul said that there was coming a day when men would refuse marriage ceremonies, 1 Timothy 4, verse 3. Cyprian, a third century Catholic church leader, believed just that. Marriage ceremonies are too frivolous, he said. Yes, parties and Christianity need to be separate. But so the misconception began to grow, which I believe today still does, that true spirituality and misery go hand in hand. Remember how I said earlier that if someone was married to their ideology, that they could always find something to criticize? See, John and his his disciples fasted, but yours eat and drink. See, no matter what Jesus did, it wouldn't be right in the Pharisees' eyes. Verse 34, and he said to them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. So Jesus compared his being with them on earth to that of a wedding. In the Old Testament, that image uh, used for the relationship between God and his people, uh, it was used in order to describe the relationship between God and his people or to describe the messianic period. For example, in Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband. Your Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. And in Hosea chapter 2 verse 16 and it shall be in that day says the lord that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master jesus explained while he was on earth the time was not right for fast we also see that he says the bridegroom will be taken away this is the first hint in jesus's ministry that his death is approaching Now, the church will and did fast after his death. In Acts 14.23, it states, So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Though such fasting uh, returned, it was not required or even as closely regulated as it was in Judaism. Now, I suggest that Jesus speaks, uh, his answer speaks not only of his crucifixion prophetically, but of his place in our lives currently. A person who truly senses what the presence of of Jesus in his life will celebrate what Jesus did. What about us? Have we lost sight of the fact that Jesus came to bring us life and life abundantly? To let us experience real celebration? Would we be invited to a neighborhood function readily? Do our co-workers include us when they get together, or is there something about us, like uh, Pharisees, that they convenient go ahead, conveniently go ahead and forget to invite us? Jesus was included in all kinds of parties. The common people embraced him and loved to be around him. Why? I say because he brought a higher degree of joy wherever he went. I pray that we might be able to penetrate the parties of our society, that the people would feel free to include us in their celebrations, but that we might also do what Jesus did. He came to people as they were, but he also left them different than when he found them. If you find that the party or the people are affecting you rather than you affecting them, Caution to the wise, be careful. But if like Jesus, you can go into a place and make a difference by your joy and the unmistakable reality of God's work in your life, then go with God's blessing. You know, Acts 8 tells us that the early church was so full of joy that they caused an entire city, the city of Samaria, to be full of joy as well. Celebrate your salvation. Folks, do that as we infiltrate their situation. Which brings us to our second point today celebrate your salvation. Celebrate your salvation. Realize that Jesus can handle your humanity and that he would rather see you a friend of sinners than a self righteous Pharisee. So then, like Jesus, let's go out and make a difference in our community. As we celebrate our salvation. Verse 36. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise the new, new makes a tear. And also that piece was taken out of the new does not match the old. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to go ahead and patch up the old religious system. I came to do something entirely new. Verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So you can't put new wine in hardened old wineskins, because when the new wine starts to ferment, the old hardened wineskins can't flex with it. And it causes it to burst and the new wine to be lost. This applies to us individually as well as churches corporately. Here's what happens. When people are touched by the Lord and filled with the Spirit, the new wine of joy and vitality begins to bubble within them. But they will discover often that just as with Jesus after his own baptism, they'll be driven out into the wilderness, into a battle, into hard times. And it's at this point, I'm willing to face the difficulty of the challenge, the trials, the tribulations. They give up. They break. They burst. And they go back to their previous ways, what they used to do in church. Sometimes they come. Sometimes they put a dollar in the offering. And they play the game of being a Christian. Does this mean that we are doomed to to be old, hardened wineskins that cannot take In the new work of the Lord to give us, that he's given to us? I don't think so. You see, the Greek word translated new in relationship to the wine is neos. But the word translated new in relation to the wineskins is kainos. And literally means renewed. Something interesting. During Jesus' time when old wineskins were were starting to get brittle and starting to get... um, hard. They were very expensive. So if you couldn't replace one, what you did was you soaked it in water until the elasticity and the flexibility returned. I find that analogy interesting because scripture are compared to waters. Our scriptures are compared to water. Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. How do we stay flexible? How do we stay usable? In whatever the Lord might be wanting to do with us corporately or personally, we soak ourselves not in traditionalism, not in a specific denomination, but in his word, the word of God. If we make reading the Bible a priority in our lives and an emphasis in a ministry, then it will have that softening, that renewing effect on us. But... When the Bible no longer takes precedence or priority in the church or in an individual, it is instead replaced by programs, traditions, or denominations. Rigidity is sure to follow. Which brings us to our third and our final point. Let his word take priority in our lives. Let his word take priority in our lives. Did you know that you can read the entire Bible in its completeness aloud in 71 hours? Or, if you break that down, 12 minutes a day for a year. Speaking of which, our one-year reading plan that's out in the foyer, it's not too late. You can still jump in on that. Grab one on your way out. Now, most of us will spend 12 hours just in combing our hair or brushing our teeth. 12 hours, 12 minutes, 12 minutes. So it's not a question of whether we have time to read the word. The question is, do we choose to do it? There's only one place a believer can't stay. He cannot stay the same. You know, I used to work in a health club and on the back of the shirts, it said, um, there is no such thing as staying the same. You are either improving or getting worse. Now, that was in a physical sense in relationship to the body. But I believe the same is true spiritually. That is, we are either growing and expanding in our walk, or we are shrinking and weakening in our walk. Your faith is either more radical today than it was a year ago, or it's less so. If we are determined together to soak in the Word, we will experience that continued renewing new discoveries, new understandings, and a constant softening. And then the Lord will be able to pour new wine into these old vessels. Verse 39. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new. For he says, the old is better. Now, in the past election that we had, there was all this talk about throwing out the incumbents and a red wave, a majority, uh coming into, uh, across this country. And we voted back the same people into office. Why? I know, I know, election fraud, right? (laughs) I'm with you there. But also, I believe that we complain about government officials, and we say that there needs to be the, the change, but the fact is, too many are comfortable with the familiar. I don't need to soak in the Word any longer, you might be thinking. I've got my knowledge of the Scriptures, and my theology is solid, Adam. But it's because it's too late to soften the wineskins when the new wine is poured. If you're not soaking in the Scriptures, what's about to happen to you? You'll be left out. Now, I'm not talking about losing your salvation, but about missing out on being in the know of what the Lord is and will do these last days. May he give us wisdom. Would you pray with me? Lord, we seek the wisdom of your word. And Lord, I pray that we would be strong, that we would delve into your word like true Bereans, constantly searching, searching your word, searching the truth so that we can take that truth and apply it in our own lives. Dear God, please, I pray this be our battle cry. I pray each and every day, Lord, that we have our spiritual armor on, that, Lord, we are standing fast, ready, ready for that day when you will return. God, let us be diligent about your work. God, can't thank you enough for the blessings and the fact that your word does not return void. So we thank you for this time spent together. We thank you for Jesus and what you did on the cross. And we thank you for those eternal rewards. Lord, let us be that and have that focus in our lives. Know how much we love you. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.